Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm your host, John Williamson, and we're back with an all episode. Happy holidays and happy new year. We are in 2024. And as I said, got a few more episodes yet to uh, provide for you guys. And uh, I really, truly hope that you enjoy the next few uh, as we finish up uh, this last season and uh, I take a little bit of a break. Uh, we'll, we'll definitely be back. Definitely be back uh, working on lots of stuff right now. Just need a little time to, uh, to let it cook. And um, there'll be more information coming out shortly about uh, what I'm up to. So um, in the here and now, uh, if you are new to the podcast, I highly appreciate uh, you guys checking it out. Hopefully you enjoy what you hear. Uh, those of you who are returning listeners, thank you so much, as always, for your support. Uh, 2023 was a much better year uh, for me personally, as, as some of you have been around for a while know. Uh, and um, I'm looking forward to 2024, absolutely. So uh, with that being said, uh, a couple housekeeping things, www.thedeconstructionist.com. Uh, if you go there, you'll see all things Deconstructionist. It's got links to our social media. Uh, it's got links to our uh, brand new web store, brand new, brand new web store, faster shipping. I think that's the key there. Uh, faster shipping, uh, international shipping for the first time, uh, and a lot more variety, uh, some new designs, um, all sorts of stuff on there. So check it out. Uh, links are in our show notes. Um, and again, you can link through our um, website as well. Um, additionally, there is our blog that you can find on there, uh, guest writers, our writings, all sorts of stuff on there, as well as you can stream every single one of our previous episodes for free uh, through the website as well. So check it out. Uh, otherwise, this week's guest is Sarah Stancorp. She's the author of the book Disobedient Women, uh, which is awesome. It uh, just came out through Worthy Books uh, Hatchet. Um, it's a culmination of years of reporting on women who use the internet to call out abuse within their evangelical communities. Uh, it's a book for and about people of faith and those who have walked away. Uh, it's a deeply researched work that gives long overdue recognition to the women who have turned their lives to speak out boldly, even as they were expected to submit and remain silent. Very, very important. Uh, Sarah's a wonderful writer. Uh, her works have appeared all over the place, including the Washington Post magazine, the New York Times, the Washington Post, Vogue, Mary Claire, Glamour, O Magazine, uh, and a host of others. So uh, recommend that, highly recommend that you check it out. Very, very important book that gives voice to a lot of people who at certain points uh, were voiceless. So uh, check it out. Great conversation. Uh, just a, a heads up. Sarah um, has a vocal disorder that she talks about early on in the podcast. So uh, she felt um, that it was important for us to, to talk about it just so you guys could understand why. Maybe it's a little trickier to hear what she has to say. So you have to focus a little bit more, perhaps. Um, try to amp up the audio a little bit, too, uh, to give her a little bit of a boost, a little bit of an assist there. But uh, it might be a little bit harder to hear. Um, that is just... Uh, um, that's just it. So, um, so I'll also put, uh, I'm trying to put together the transcripts too. So if you want to read along, you can, uh, just to give her a little assist as well. Uh, but great, great conversation. She's a wonderful interview. I had a great time, uh, talking to her about all of the research she's done and what she's up to in her career. Uh, so hopefully you guys enjoy this. This is part one of two parts 
And then I believe I have one more episode after that, kind of an interesting one uh, that kind of calls back to an early, early episode that we did. Uh, and I'll leave it at that for now. Uh, definitely a different kind of episode, different kind of interview, but fascinating. So with that being said, uh, let's get to it. Without further ado, I give you Sarah freaking Stancorp. Do you even hope? Cause I am hopeless. Yeah, we're going. Okay. <laughs> there was a little bit of a delay and I'm like, has it started or not? Okay. Well, that's a great professional intro by me. Uh, welcome to the Deconstructionist <laughs> Podcast. Uh, I have my guest on today, Sarah Stancorb. Um, brand new book out. Uh, and um, all right, so let's let's get into your your most recent book because I think this is a very pe- uh, important uh, book that's out there. Um, I, you and I were talking a little bit before we started recording, and just the the amount of damage. And I don't want to paint. And you know, in broad strokes by any means, but I think mm-hmm. it's fair to say that uh, the movement that has been happening for the past decade or longer now is often a result of uh, some of the damage that's been done by specifically evangelical Christianity in America um, and the way in which it's structured. Mm-hmm. And we'll certainly get into that. But um, you have a book called mm-hmm. Disobedient Women. How a small group of faithful women exposed abuse, brought down powerful pastors, and ignited an evangelical reckoning. And there are a lot of examples in there, um, oftentimes hard to read. And so tell me, like, how, how did this book come about? How did it come to be? So uh, there may be two different answers to that question. I think the first answer is that I think it was twenty. I started writing about one of the women in the book, Vicki Garrison, who ran a blog called No Longer Quivering, and it was about her life as a quiverful mother, which if people don't know what that is, it's a movement that encourages women to have baby after baby after baby, and her womb produces an army for God, is the idea. Anyway, I interviewed Vicki. And from her website, I found other websites of people leading different forms of evangelism or deconstructing or asking questions. And as a reporter, I just bounced from group to group to group and dug deeper and deeper into this world that previously I hadn't really understood that it existed. The other piece is that after writing about these people, and really primarily women for years, in more recent years, as there started to be docu-series and podcasts, contemplating, how did we get here? No one knew. It drove me nuts. People knew. These women were writing about it for years. They're why you know about it now. Um, so in that way, I think the book came out of profound irritation that these women have put in you know, a decade or more of un- unpaid labor to point out abuse, and we're getting very little recognition mm. for it. Yeah, and it's... it's um... Again, I was telling you, I think before we started recording, you know, that there are stories in here that are 
far too identical to ones that I've experienced uh, in my personal life in, in, in terms of women that, um, you know, are in my life and, and have gone through just awful, awful scenarios that I wouldn't wish on anyone. And just there was no sense of real justice that took place in those situations. Um, it, and, and it's because, you know, as you talk about in the book, this this patriarchal system that's put in place is so baked in and ingrained into this very powerful structure that it, it, it creates a scenario where it's really difficult for the women involved to to come out and to bring about a scenario where justice could be possible. You know, a lot of the women in the book are still go um, anonymous, you know, just for their own protection and safety. And it's just, wow, how do we bring how do we bring down a system that's got all the power? <laughs> That's a very good question. I think exposing hard truths is a part of it. Um, creating networks of support for when people do come forward has definitely been a piece of it, of people being willing to be a megaphone for other people when they step up because not only are these people who have been abused overcoming teachings that are also ingrained, such as do not gossip, telling the truth about abuse to other people instead of just facing the person who you're accusing, that's coded as a sin. They're also overcoming the fact that, say, they were raped or they were sexually assaulted. If they were raised in purity culture, they believe, they may believe it was their fault that they bought the song, that they tempted their assailant. So you have all of that even before you step forward. And then when people step forward and they threaten the power of these very influential pastors and their very powerful ministries, often what they're confronted with is a full court press of attack and harassment that is meant to silence them and is meant to make people believe they brought it on themselves or that they must be lying. Things like this don't happen in our church. And what you need on the other side is people who will do their research, will do their due diligence, but will also be willing to stand up and say, if this did happen, this is wrong. There needs to be an external investigation. This needs to be reported to the police. What we're talking about are not just sins, they're crimes. And crimes are not not to be handled within a church structure. That's not what the churches they don't have expertise <laughs> uh, or the legal ability or the jurisdiction. It's just not not the place. Yeah, it's uh it's interesting. I was having this conversation earlier where, you know, it's it's confounding to me that there are these scenarios where these things, these horrific acts take place and they're brought to the surface mm-hmm. and the church deals with them in a way that is outside the law. Yeah, meaning that they well, it's mm-hmm. a, it's a it's a sin, you know, uh he made a judgment and error, it was a mistake, but he's he's not going to do it again. It's fine. And it's like I don't think anybody's arguing that it was a sinful act that was committed, but why is it that it can't be both a sinful act and a crime? 
And I can yeah. I can work on forgiving this human being while they serve their prison sentence. You know, that's kind of the way I look at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the, the forgiveness piece, that was very interesting to me in reporting on so many of these stories. Because when you code the crime as sin, then you equal things out in a way. And so the person who was victimized is told, well, it would be a sin for you not to forgive. So that there's not only a diminishment of the attack or the assault or the spiritual abuse, but then that is leveled out with the obligation to forgive them. And then that allows people who may commit another crime slash sin to continue coexisting in these communities without any warning to other people. Because if you've forgiven them, you won't gossip about them. You won't tell anyone else. Mm. And, and, and again, I've, I've seen that in action. Um, someone very close to me uh, was date raped. I mean, I, there's no way to soften that. Mm-hmm. It, it was what happened. And um, in, in the way that in which it was handled was it was sort of, uh, you know, the same kind of thing. Well, this person had a drinking problem and, and we're going to put him in rehab and everything's fine. And he came out of it and got to live his life and, and everything was fine. But, you know, leaving the victim and we found out later victims because they didn't act on it in an appropriate way, did not involve law enforcement, yeah. other women or, or victims uh, that could this could have been stopped and they're left holding the bag and, and dealing with the broken mess that is left while this individual goes on and, and lives his merry life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, no, I, I'm sorry. We talked about this before we started recording, but just, yeah, I'm sorry to hear about that. And also sorry for the commonality. I mean, I think that's, why a number of these women that I write about in the book at a certain point when they saw how common these situations were, they they almost had no other moral option but to speak out and do it in a very loud, persistent sort of way to demand that people look and see and understand what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. Um... You did mention you had an interesting kind of journey into uh, evangelical, uh, the evangelical world, as as did I. We had similar <laughs> paths, uh, oddly. Um, you mentioned in the book that you grew up Presbyterian, then later a youth group Methodist. Mine was uh, I grew up born and raised Lutheran, even you know ELC a Lutheran, and then I experienced evangelical Christianity for the first time in my late teens, early twenties when I went off to college and got invited, as as often happens. Uh, you did as well. And then, and you mentioned that's where you started to learn about, you know, where you say, uh, where sin and salvation were fixed. Um, and I found yes. that to be the case as well. Talk about like, cause you kind of got pulled into evangelical charismatic Christianity. Like a lot of us, I think did, uh, where it all started, where a peer told you, Hey, you're doing it wrong. Uh, prayed for you, had you testify, and then started to indoctrinate you into this version of Christianity that's very much built on shame and guilt and patriarchy. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I think growing up 
for me faith was a refuge. And the church that I went to, I read my Christopher Pike books. I um, went to the library and read anything I could find in the religion section. And it didn't matter. I could ask, like, what about reincarnation at Sunday school? And no one cared. And then one of my, my, one of my best friends who... I thought I knew a, a little bit more about Christianity than me. So I started taking me to a Bible study and then it's a Bible study and met other kids and um, ended up at a church dance where I accidentally got saved and then had to testify at the mic and I had no idea what had just happened. Um, and so in a lot of ways, I just sort of like bumped into evangelicalism. But once I got the idea in my head that there's a right way and a wrong way, it really put me on edge because I, I, I had a friend who was gay who had come out and I loved him. And I had never really had any worry that he was a sinner. But then I was hearing at this new Bible study, absolutely, this is, this is bad. This is going to lead to people to hell. Um, I had never seen an issue with a woman being a religious leader. Our associate pastor was a woman. I loved her. But then when I thought, you know, maybe I'm getting called for ministry, and I told my good buddy, he really took pity on me and, and had to be the one to break it to me. No, no, no. That's not what's in the Bible, that's not what God wants. And I, I didn't, I don't know, I definitely wouldn't have called myself evangelical, but I kept colliding with these evangelical communities. And the doubt in what I had believed continued to grow. And I began to have this model that faith could only be one thing. And it was what I was hearing from these new to me evangelical leaders. Um, and then by the time I went off to college, there were a number of factors, but uh, I had a course where I just reread the Bible, the entire Bible. And we learned the history around the times it was written and redacted. And seeing that this, this thing that had seemed like a rule book was far more complicated and had a much richer history. It bounced off of this form of faith that I had been told was the only way. And by then, what I understood is faith was so rigid that I couldn't expand back out. And so my faith just broke. Yeah, I think I think it's interesting. I, I again followed sort of a similar path where once you start to dig into it, do any amount of research and and realize that, mm-hmm. gosh, like context is really important here. Um, understanding the yeah. history of what was happening yeah. around the time these things were written, and then mm-hmm. even like consulting the, the scholarship behind it, like you know people who have spent their entire lives who read and speak Greek and and Hebrew and saying. Well, that's not exactly what that word means, you know, and it, just that alone is enough to say, all right, maybe I don't know everything that's going on here. 
Yeah, I know. And I took my three semesters of coining Greek. I mean, I, I tried. I really, I really tried. It's hard stuff. I mean, and and it's they are very complex languages and we've talked a lot about that on the podcast over the years is that you know when you're translating into another language english for us there aren't always like for like words mm-hmm. from greek or hebrew into english and so we have to make a decision so those interpreters are making a conscious decision in that moment on, on what word to use and sometimes it can slightly change the meaning behind it and then you know we take it as as uh, as as factual and create an entire structure around that, you know, that, that oftentimes throughout history has alienated women, uh, uh, people of color, uh, pe- people within the LGBTQ plus community. And like, it seems to immediately start shifting things away from what, what I learned about the gospels anyway, you know, loving your neighbor, period. That's it. There were no exceptions attached yes. to that, but only the white <laughs> ones. No, I don't think that's what it says. <laughs> right, right. And I mean, I, it's very interesting to me that this worked on me in the way that it did. And I, I know now this like, vast population of sources who are raised in evangelical communities, they had God's umbrella of authority. They had it beginning to end. And just my sideswipe with it spiraling for at least a decade. Um, and so I think it gives me a lot of empathy for people who didn't have an alternative worldview well, to start with. And it really makes me aware of just how difficult it could be to take a step out, not knowing if there's like ground out there. You're really that. That's also a leap of faith. Absolutely, and and one of the things I kept thinking when I was reading your book and some of these different accounts by these very brave women who have, who have come forward is, you know, when you are in a situation where uh, your entire community is 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 fully sold on this system of beliefs or this version of Christianity, you know, like where, where do you go? You know, you are, are deeply ingrained within that community. And sometimes to, to step outside of that or to leave that is to leave your friends, your family, you know, it's, it's a complete, you know, change to your entire life. And so I, I, I sympathize with that and say like, I don't know that I would have done things any differently. Mm-hmm. And often they end up in mm-hmm. poverty. So if you're a young adult and you have to leave your family in order to break free, or if you're a woman in an abusive relationship and you have to leave, you risk losing your children um, and them staying with the abusive spouse. There's just there's so much risk. And when the when the reward is pastors about you on Twitter, that that I think shows why it was so vital for people to find others and for them to find a community of other people who had had similar experiences. I think sometimes about this because in all of my interviews with folks who took the internet and discovered it wasn't just me. 
they really often did believe it was only them who had had specific experiences until they got online and saw, I know it's happened to a lot of other people. Maybe there's something systemic behind all of this. So that's the, the power of the internet is really impressive here. But it also makes me wonder about how many people there were before the internet who had similar systems within their church and suffered a lot. Um, and that's, that's something that I kind of just sit on. I, I don't know. I don't have numbers. I, I can't quantify. I don't know for sure. But I, I just have a sense this is this moment, if you want to say it's a right thing, this moment that started a few years back on the internet, it was necessary. Uh, but I just don't know for how long that need had been there before that. Yeah, I mean, that's an excellent point. You know, the, the internet, uh, as much as it annoys me sometimes, uh, when used mm -hmm. correctly, can be used for, for good. And certainly one of the, the good uh, aspects of the internet has been the fact that it is it, it allows us instantaneous information and um, can very, very quickly uh, expose things going around anywhere in the world. And yeah, before that, mm -hmm. you're like, Gosh, they had no resources. There was no recourse prior to the internet for a lot of folks in this position. Mm -hmm. Well, and even just with like, the idea of deconstruction, which for some people ends up being part of this. And I lost my faith. It was like 1998. Um, and then by the mid I had a blog, I think, like a dozen people maybe read it, like, not regularly, and I didn't know anyone else who had gone through this. I had my friends who still went to church, and I had a couple of people who didn't, and I didn't know anyone. They carried this, like, big weight in their chest of what was missing and what they wanted to have again, and I think now when there are so many people speaking up about their experiences and creating online support networks. It's, I, I think it's, it's allowing people to own what they're thinking and what they're experiencing. And I, I don't know that that's contributing to people deconstructing. I think there are plenty of other reasons people are deconstructing, but the internet does create a funnel for people to fight other problems. Oh, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> I think a uh, testament to that is is the, the work that I've done over the years on this podcast. When mm -hmm. Adam, uh, who started the podcast with me, um, when we both started it, we had very low expectations. We thought maybe, hey, at the, at the end of this first year, if we had like 100, 200 listeners, that'd be amazing. Without having any sense for how many people were looking for a safe place uh, to have these types of discussions and wrestle with their faith and have doubts and have a place where it's okay to do that. And before too long, we had this, this large collection of people who were expressing this, you know, this notion that like, Oh my gosh, I thought I was alone this entire time. And now I realize that there are people out there, mm -hmm. even oftentimes in the same geographical region who completely identify. Yeah. It's like, it's almost as if, Hey, we're everywhere. 
we're just afraid to say it until we realize mm-hmm. the person standing next to us is mm-hmm. in the exact same place as we are. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if this story is appropriate or not, but um, I had a moment. So back when I was first saved and then saved again and then again because I couldn't tell, um, I was encouraged to let my people I love know. So I told my mother and she just sort of raised an eyebrow and that was it. And then years, a few years later, when I decided I didn't want to go to church anymore, I told my mom and she shocked me and said, well, good, I never believed any of it either. And she just quit going to church. The woman who had forced me into dress shoes every Sunday morning my entire life because it was good for me. It was like, I don't know, you reach into adulthood, your parents were telling you to eat your vegetables. <laughs> like, that's what it was. And evidently, she hadn't believed for some long period of time, but had no one to tell. So she just kept going. That's yeah, that's amazing. It, it's it's kind of like uh, you know, I grew up in a uh, like I said, a Lutheran household, and my dad was my pastor. You know, he was the pastor, and mm-hmm. um, I just had a, a, a probably a list of assumptions about what he believed my entire life until I started going through a deconstruction. I started having these amazing conversations with my dad, and he's like, "Yeah, I don't believe that either." You know, like whatever it was we were talking about, and I'm like, "What?" I'm like. How long have you been holding on to this, Dad? Like, come on. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, and then we went to a family funeral. And as a pastor, you know, I, I feel sorry for a clergy who get thrown into a funeral and they don't really know mm-hmm. the deceased. So he was clearly damping. Like, he didn't really <laughs> know much about this family member. But he started talking about him singing with the angels. And my, this was a few months after my mom was going to church. And she leaned over and whispered in my ear, like, you don't believe that, do you? He, he, he couldn't sing. I mean, <laughs> it, but never before had she said anything like that. Um, it's it's definitely a different experience than a lot of the people that I write about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the one of the things you say at the beginning of the book that I wanted to make sure I I, I mentioned on the podcast. There's a quote mm-hmm. at the beginning of the book that hit me like super hard, where you say uh, abuse is a unique violence when paired with faith. And I thought, oh man, it really it, it really is just a two headed monster. You're you're adding trauma on top of yeah. trauma in that situation. It's a very unique mm-hmm. type of trauma mm-hmm. in that way. Mm-hmm. So uh, that thought, I, I think, I, I actually added that in toward the end. Um, and I, I can talk about this or just summarize. But um, while I was writing the book, my father who was an alcoholic most of his life. He was sober by the end. Um, he became very sick. And we learned he and my mother both had dementia. I was put in charge of taking care of both. Um, more, no one else could do it, so it was my job. Um, and I had this year where I was 
absorb in so many stories or reabsorb in stories of church-related abuse and church-related trauma. At the same time, I was dealing with my father's decline and his memories lifting and his rage because it was awful to be at the end of your life and then not remember why you're dying. So all of that came my direction. And since I had been so afraid of him as a child, I felt a lot of those memories surfacing every time he blew up in a rage. But having both of those experiences, the reporting on church-related abuse and the memories of my own childhood, it also distinguished for me the difference between some forms of abuse and the additional layer within spiritual abuse. Many of my sources had fathers who beat them or mothers who beat them, but they did so because, you know, James Dobson said to, um, and because their parents believed if I can teach you to live right here, I will save your eternal life. And so that behavior that scared my sources as a child, it wasn't just scary, which is bad enough, but it was frightful and rationalized as what God wanted. And that is so, so difficult. And that's why I wanted, I think by the, by the end of these dual experiences, I wanted to show people, I mean, a lot of us grew up in difficult families. And I wanted also to have a, a road for people like me who didn't have the spiritual abuse, but could maybe understand what that might be like and why that would be complicated in a different way. So that's uh, what I was starting to introduce with that part of the book. Yeah, and you tell a lot of stories where that is the case, where they're they're suffering both types of trauma and oftentimes physical and psychological abuse under the guise of religion. And um, at the very beginning of the book, you talk about the experience of a woman named Vicky. Uh, who is basically taught that everything secular is basically evil and Satan is in charge of the world system, whatever that is. And, uh, and, and it reminded me immediately, it made me think back to uh, years back when we first started the podcast and interviewed a guy named Dr. Steve Hassan, who is a um, uh, renowned uh, expert on cults. And he breaks down the different techniques that cults use. One of them is to demonize anything that doesn't align with your set of beliefs like they're literally uh, oftentimes evil, but literally sometimes like a demon, it's a demon, they're a demon or a devil, you know? And, and so they demonize that. And then they narrow down the approved literature that you're allowed to read to only things that conform with that set of beliefs, um, isolation techniques, uh, you know, you can't survive without us, you know, kind of thing. So they are even hesitant to leave for fear that their life will collapse, you know? And, and I keep thinking about all these things because a lot of that, uh, those techniques are very present in a lot of the stories that you tell throughout the book. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's slightly different in that evangelicalism, I like that uh, Christian Dubé 
described as a marketplace, and it really is also in the in the traditional form to you know spend some money to get these books and then go to these conferences. So it, it can feel when you're inside of it like you have freedom. I can go to the Christian bookstore. I can choose my curriculum from Bill Gothard or Vision Forum or Ibeka. Look at all these options I have. But when there is a strong commonality like complementarianism, uh, skepticism about the nature of American child slavery, any of these things, if you're, you choose your own adventure, it's still within a bounded system. So that you have this sense of freedom, but you're the, the, the school of ideas that you can choose from is still very limited. Um, now, depending on your church, you very well may have a pastor who says, this is the right way, this is the only way. If you look at those books, if you go to another church, you're in spiritual danger. So you can still have that very high control, but depending on where you fit within evangelicalism, you could also have sense of freedom and still have a very restricted worldview. Yeah. John was young and driven with a heart of gold Finished seminary, married, found a church he could call home Made a living, giving, dying folks a shoulder and a hand Until he told his lead that he had some feelings for another man and they said John you must go and take your broken heart and walk it to the door we know you're hurting and you've been giving but now Didn't know your quest would lead you down 
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.